Jesus, my master, had just died. I stood there just near the cross with Mary and the other women, heartbroken at the events that unfolded that day, tears streaming down our face as we watched in agony what had happened. And then suddenly we noticed that the soldiers were coming back. There was suddenly activity. What was there any need to do after six hours of horror that we'd witnessed? But soon it became clear what their purpose was. They walked up to the first criminal on one side of Jesus and took out a mallet and smacked into his legs. There was the unmistakable crack of bone breaking and the agony of the man throwing his head back in pain. But they were speeding up his death. Though it seemed so cruel after such horror for so many hours, it would mercifully end quickly from now. We saw them go to the criminal on the other side of Jesus. It was excruciating just to watch, but again, the crack and the sound of bone breaking. You see the effect of it as their body slumps because they're unable to push themselves up to breathe any longer unable to get breath into their lungs as they hang down limply, with no energy, with all the weight now pulling on the nails, death would come quickly. But I was drawn back to the scene. I had to look again, despite what I was seeing, because I wanted to know what would happen with Jesus. We knew he was dead. He had said, it is finished. He hung limply down already. There was nothing more needed to be done, surely. And as the Romans approached him, thankfully, they could see that he was already dead. They did not apply the same thing to him. The Romans were experts in killing. They knew if somebody's life had been completed. <sighs> I breathed a sigh of relief at that point. At least they would not treat him shamefully before they brought him down. And then suddenly one of the soldiers turned around and thrust his spear into his side. This cruel action, unnecessary malice. What point? He's already dead. There was no reaction at all, of course. There was just a sudden flow of blood and water from him. After all these hours of pain, these same people that had whipped him within an inch of his life before he'd even had to carry the crossbar, stumbling his way up to this point at Golgotha to be crucified and the humiliation that had followed. Why? Why bother? Well, it dawned on me that the reason this was happening, the reason the Romans were speeding up the death is because the Sabbath was coming. This was Friday afternoon. Sabbath is Saturday, but it begins in the evening of the Friday night, as soon as darkness falls. And so if these bodies were not to spoil or contaminate this most important of Sabbaths, they needed to be down before sundown. Our religious leaders had obviously seen to it and had the Romans speed up the whole grim affair. You see, this was a most important Sabbath. This was not just any Sabbath. This was the Passover. This was where we remembered the angel of death passing over the houses, that rescue, that amazing rescue 13 centuries earlier in Egypt, 
when we were saved and brought out from that place of slavery. It was ironic, wasn't it? Here was the unblemished lamb whose bones remained unbroken, hanging on the cross. And yet they were worried that somehow Jesus and these two criminals would spoil their Sabbath, their Passover. Well, it was done. And thousands were in the city. Like every year, tens of thousands poured into Jerusalem to mark and celebrate this most important point on the calendar of the Jewish people. But in the midst of all these brutal and chaotic events, with the religious leaders appealing to Pilate and the actions of the soldiers, God's word was being fulfilled. As I reflected on the events that day, not one of his bones were broken, just as scripture had said. Psalm 34, a thousand years earlier. And Zechariah 12, 500 years earlier, the prophecy that they would pierce his side. It had happened in that spear thrust. God was fulfilling his plan. Even when everything seemed lost and out of control, God was in control. He was bringing his plans to bear on our world. And so as we stood in shock, the crosses then became empty. The bodies were taken down and it was like a bad dream was ending. But only, oh, if it only it had been. The bodies needed to be put in place before darkness. And I was just thankful that somebody was coming to take the body down and give Jesus a proper burial. I mean, usually when people were crucified at Golgotha, they just took the bodies and threw them in a mass grave that was nearby. There was no ceremony. There was no proper Jewish burial. It was all done as for someone who was worthless. But here Jesus was being taken down. And as I strained to see who it was, I was suddenly completely dumbfounded. How could it be there were two Pharisees that were coming to get Jesus' body? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the one who had come to Jesus in the middle of the night wanting to understand how he could be born again. The secret disciple of Jesus who wouldn't stand up in the Sanhedrin, who were all against Jesus. I mean, this very ruling council, the ones that had organized, orchestrated the Christ's death who had had the people baying for his blood that morning, that he might die. Here were two of them coming to rescue, as it were at the end, or at least provide a burial. Joseph of Arimathea, he was one of the richest in the Sanhedrin. And clearly a secret disciple of Jesus. Whatever had been their fears until this moment, the crucifixion had thrown them off. And now there they were, publicly owning Jesus caring for him, providing a place for his body to lay. Well, you never know who will respond to Jesus. You know, this granting of his body was one thing. But then the way, as we followed at a distance, we saw them treat him. You know, he was put into a newly hewn rock cave, Only a rich person like Joseph could own such a place. Nobody had ever been placed there before. And then we saw that Nicodemus had brought kilos and kilos of spices, myrrh and aloe, to treat the body, 
before it was put in. So much, it was just amazing. This was the kind of amount that you would only apply to royalty to a king. And so it was only right, wasn't it? He was. And there they placed him in a garden tomb, his body wrapped in linen, and a traumatic day was brought to a close. You see, I had to record these things as somebody who witnessed them, as somebody who saw with my own eyes the events that unfolded that day, so that you might know that all that those that might follow would see, that this was how the Christ was treated, that he truly was the king, that he came to bear our sin, to take the punishment that we deserve, that God truly does love the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that we might go free. Have you read my testimony or that of my friends, Matthew, Mark and Luke, as they wrote down these events that happened this first Easter in Jerusalem? Have you considered for yourself owning Jesus? Perhaps you've been someone like Nicodemus or someone like Joseph, who for years has thought about following Jesus, but you've never been willing to take that step. You haven't been able to own him publicly. But perhaps you're at that point today where you really want to say, I want to stand for Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I want people to know that I'm with him. Well, these events were recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that in the eyewitness testimony of John and the other disciples that we have a clear account of these startling events that point us to not only the identity of Jesus as the awaited Christ, the King who was to come, but also your desire that we may respond to him that we might be like Nicodemus, like Joseph, indeed like Mary and the other women who were present, who would follow him knowing that he was the Christ. Lord, help us to respond to this one who came and gave his life for us. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, back in 2013, uh, Prince Andrew was walking around the grounds of Buckingham Palace, as he sometimes did, thinking, having some time by himself, when he was suddenly accosted by two policemen that act as security guards in the palace. They came up behind him and wanted him to verify his identity. It was basically a case of, halt, who goes there? Well, Andrew was stunned by this sudden event, and he turned around and in great fury said to them, Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? He was so angry. They only had a certain number of people that they should be able to identify and know and protect. And he was one of them. And yet they picked on him as if he was some stranger, some intruder inside the grounds. Well, he wouldn't leave it be and just walk away. And he lectured them and gave them quite a dressing down because of the events. The policemen, as they realized their mistake, uh, apologized, but this was not sufficient. And so he got into this very heated discussion with them as he talked about their failure and how they should know who he was. 
and how they should never come up and sneak up on him like that. It was disrespectful that they had treated him poorly. And as they continued to apologize and try to explain themselves, he said, you must know who I am. Well, here was a failure to recognize royalty that was perhaps inexcusable. But when it comes to the case of Jesus, as he hung dying on the cross, surely it was a little less obvious. I mean, he was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem and a little mound of dirt outside the city gates that everybody would see as they would come past. And there he was being crucified at this place, Golgotha, by the Roman authorities who ruled Israel in the first century. There were two others being crucified with him, one other side. And it was a scene that had played out thousands and thousands of times right across the Roman Empire. There was nothing new in what people were seeing here. It was just another one in this Jewish backwater that the Romans controlled. And of course, generally only criminals got crucified or those who had opposed Roman power. And so by definition, anybody who was hanging on a cross was inconsequential. Why would there be anything here to see? How could he possibly be royalty, a king? A king could not be subjected to such inhumane, barbaric treatment. If Jesus was a king, surely he would not die this way. Or could he? You see, in this section of John's record of Jesus' death, he's drawing attention to his identity. Who is this man? Who is he? And he does so in the first instance by recording what was written on the sign above his head. You see, in verse 19, we read, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so no one would miss it. Pilate saw to it that it was translated into three languages, into Aramaic, which was the local Jewish dialect that most of the people spoke, into Latin, which was the Roman language, the language of government and rule, and into Greek, the most used language in the world of that day. It wouldn't matter who walked into the city of Jerusalem and saw this scene, they'd be able to read it and they would know who this guy was. But of course, the title wasn't believed by the Jewish religious authorities. In fact, they got very upset that Pilate had written this. And they went to him and they complained and they said, no, say that he claimed to be this, but he's not that. Of course, why did Pilate do it? The Romans loved to have anyone who was supposedly some king-like figure. And then as a deterrent to the local population, they could hold them up to ridicule and the humiliation that was crucifixion. Pilate didn't believe a word of it. King of the Jews, ha, there he is. Look at that, some king. But despite the Jewish religious authorities being upset, they got something right. Jesus had claimed to be king. He was indeed the divine son of God. He was one who had said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one goes to the father in heaven except through me. 
His miracles have demonstrated his authority over nature, over sickness, even over death. And his astounding teaching over and over and over again pointed to his divine authority, his identity. And so for many who had witnessed his life and had seen the miracles and had heard his teaching, well, they became convinced that he was who he claimed to be. They accepted him as the true Christ. That word Christ means anointed one or king. Kings or prophets were the ones that were generally anointed. And so as we read the word Christ, we can think king. And so ironically, the sign that was meant to mock him actually declared the truth. This was what he claimed and what he actually was and had demonstrated through his life. And so God the Father did not leave his son unheralded. We might say, despite the ugly death, there is no excuse for not recognizing this king either. But you might say, well, you know, surely this wasn't his plan. I mean, crucifixion, doesn't this show him to be another weak human being after all? Nobody, a nobody who had just made big claims about himself. Well, that would be true if it weren't for the fact that throughout his three years of ministry, he had predicted over and over again that he would die this very way. That this was his plan, that he had come to lay down his life for the forgiveness of sins. It had been predicted centuries earlier that he would die this way as well. It wasn't simply what Jesus said, but how he fulfilled prophecies that the people of the Jewish nation had known for generations. He was the one who had come. And so in verse 24, we read a quote from Psalm 22, written a thousand years earlier that he perfectly fulfills. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And again, in verse 28, Jesus fulfills the prophecy from Psalm 69, as he says, I am thirsty. We might say, well, anyone might say they're thirsty at that point. Uh, dehydration was part of the torture that was crucifixion. People hanging for hours in the hot sun with nothing offered to them. Of course they were thirsty. Absolutely. But it's also a paraphrase and a fulfillment of Psalm 69, where a divine sufferer is depicted as exclaiming, my throat is parched. Give me vinegar for my thirst. And so did you notice as this unfolded here that the soldiers, in a small moment of pity, decided to give him some vinegar wine, some cheap wine that they had brought to sustain themselves while they carried out the crucifixion. And so they lifted up to him on a sponge for a moment of relief. You see, the writer here, John, is showing us over and over with prophecy after prophecy, piece of evidence after piece of evidence, that this man fulfills all that was promised, that this truly is the Christ, the promised king who was to come. And so this was no ordinary man and therefore no ordinary death. And so as Jesus drinks, he then utters his final words in verse 30. It is finished. It's actually a triumphant cry at this point that what he had been sent to do, he had accomplished. He had done it. The father had sent him to lay down his life 
that he would come and be brutally treated at the end of his life and crucified in this way. And he had been obedient even to the point of death. And so rather than being out of control amidst the unimaginable horror of this physical torture, Jesus is conscious that his agony is fulfilling a plan set by the Father before time began. And in doing so, he reveals God's heart of compassion. His heart of compassion for people in this world who are perishing. And that's why the most well-known Bible verse is John 3.16, earlier in this very gospel, where we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. You see, Jesus came on a rescue mission. I don't know if you remember the story back on May 25, uh, 2006. It was an Australian involved. He'd been climbing Mount Everest with a whole team. His name was Lincoln Hall. He was a veteran mountaineer. He had been in that area many times and taken many walks up. He'd gone up Everest before. But this was the first time, actually, he'd crested all the way to the summit. But as they came back down uh, that evening or that afternoon... They got in trouble, a huge blizzard hit, their party was struggling, and he was really struggling physically. Sherpas stayed with him for a while, determined to get him back down the mountain. But eventually the other Westerners that were on the team said, you're not going to be able to save him, he can't walk, he had slipped into unconsciousness, we just have to leave him, he's going to die. And so they took his gloves and his hat, they left no oxygen behind. They just left him to die. They even, as they got down to base camp, announced to the world and to family that he had died on the mountain. And yet he was very much alive. The next day, a team largely of Americans came up to make their own attempt to climb Everest. And Daniel Mazur, who was leading that group, decided when they got to him a short way down from the crest that they would abandon their months of planning to get to the top and they would get this guy down. But you see, there was no way Lincoln Hall was going to get off that mountain unless somebody came and did that and saved him. He would have died in just a few hours more. But though unconscious, seroedema, they managed to revive him and even get him to a point eventually as they slowly got him down the mountain that he was able to stand and walk himself and he survived because people stepped in and rescued him. You know, the Bible tells us that the offer of rescue that Jesus accomplished is just like that. We're facing death without any hope of saving ourselves it's like we're the two criminals on either side of Jesus on the cross. And we have no hope unless somebody might reach down and rescue us. And in the person of Jesus, that is what God the Father offers. And that offer of rescue that Jesus accomplished is still valid for each and every one of us today. And so my question this morning is this. Have you received God's forgiveness Personally, have you received Christ's work for you? You know, in the week running up to Easter a few years ago, the Sydney Morning Herald printed an article um, that was entitled, The Odds Are On God. And it talked about 
how there was quite a spiritual revival across many countries in the world, including Australia. But of course, not just with regards to Christianity. Many various beliefs in the mixing pot that is multicultural Australia and many other countries. And when it comes to the person of Jesus, as surveys have done are Australians, there are very mixed views, aren't there? Now, some will perhaps see him as a good moral teacher, perhaps like Buddha, you know, taught some good things that we could learn from. Others see him perhaps as some kind of religious guru, you know, that gives a, a positive way of life, maybe something like a modern day Dalai Lama. Of course, others reject Jesus altogether. They just see in him this deluded man, not worthy of any attention. Maybe you struggle this morning to think how to place Jesus amongst these so-called wise people and other religious leaders. One author helpfully summarized that issue this way. Buddha never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha said, I am simply a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claim to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus is unique. He makes claims that no one before or since has made. And so the question this morning is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Have you got a handle on his identity? Jesus himself asked the question of people in his day. He said to some who were following him, who do you say I am? And one of them replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, the first step to responding to Jesus is to recognize his true identity. His death does not deny that he is Christ, the king. Rather, it confirms it. He is the forsaken king. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that as we read John's eyewitness testimony, his biography of Christ's life, we see in it astounding events that unfolded that first Easter in Jerusalem, pointing to one who was unique. That even those who were killing him could see. Lord, we pray that you might help us this morning to be clear about who Jesus is, that we might begin to respond to him rightly, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.